Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and websites, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. Welcome to Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love I'm Natalie Walton, an interior designer, stylist, and best-selling author focused on an holistic approach to homes. Each week, I'm sharing insights and interviews about the creative process to help you enhance both your interiors and well-being, as well as provide you with the tools and resources to make considered and sustainable choices with all that you create. If you like to try before you buy, I have some exciting news for you. You can now get an exclusive extract from my new book, Style. All you have to do is go to nataliewalton.com forward slash style book and enter your details to get a free sample of what's inside. So if you're intrigued to learn more about how your style is the foundation of everything you create at home, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash style book for your free exclusive sample. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to share today's episode with you. It's a really important topic. Creating a healthy home is not just important for us, but it's for our families and future generations too. But what actually is a healthy home? Is your home sick? Is it healthy? How can you know and what can you do about it? That's some of the things that we talk about in today's episode with Nicole Belsma. She is a building biologist, best-selling author of the Healthy Home, Healthy Family book, which I highly encourage you to get a copy of. Everyone should have a copy of this book. She's a PhD pending and CEO of the Australian College of Environmental Studies, which she established in 1999. She's also the founder of the Healthy Home Building Biology Movement in Australia, which was created to educate people about the health hazards in the built environment. Nicole has also lectured at tertiary institutions for 30 years 
and published in peer-reviewed journals and is regularly consulted by the media to discuss mold, electromagnetic fields and toxic chemicals, and also lectures in Australia and abroad about environmental health issues. Her research has explored the impact of environmental chemicals and wireless technologies on human health and their ramifications for general medical practice. This really is one of those episodes that I really encourage you to listen to and share with your friends, your family members. It is a really important topic and one that we all need to learn and know a whole lot more about. Enjoy. Welcome, Nicole, to the podcast. I am so looking forward to this conversation with you. I recently got hold of your book and have been going through it. And it is, I I really believe this is a sort of book that everybody should read. It is filled with so much insight and information. And it's, it's got a lot of depth to it. It sort of backs a lot of, it's backed up with a lot of, um, you know, research and, but before we kind of get into that, I want to start with you and your story, how you came to be on this path to working as a building biologist. Can you share a little bit about, I guess, your story in terms of what you've studied and then how you specifically got into this? Sure. Well, I was working as a naturopath and acupuncturist for 15 years. I was lecturing at university in history and philosophy of natural medicine, nutrition and Chinese medical theory. And I started to notice a really strong correlation between many of my patients' illnesses with asthma, allergies, fatiguing syndrome and autoimmune disorders and and infertility with their home. But it wasn't until um, we moved into our home, our first home we bought in Warrandyte, that we both experienced sleep disturbances and I subsequently had 10 miscarriages in that house. No one was able to help us if despite going to or going into IVF, which we didn't qualify for because I got pregnant easily. Um, lots and lots of different clinicians, lots of natural therapists. And in the end, I remember years into these miscarriages, my neighbor said, oh, no one successfully had kids in this house, in your house. And I went, 65 years old, that's an interesting thing. What's going on with this house? It was half an acre on the river in Warrandyte. It was beautiful. Our in-laws used to call it the B&B, but there was something very wrong. And I realised we were sleeping on the other side of wall of the meter panel in a high electromagnetic field. We were sleeping above geopathic stress when I had a dowser to check the site. The council used to come and spray um, pesticides regularly on our property because we bought it on Parks Victoria along the Yarra River. And um, we lived on a tender section. So I started to buy equipment to monitor the master bedroom, which was closest to the road, and realised that the noxious gases would triple in our bedroom and take hours to dissipate before the peak hour traffic in the afternoon would kick in and went, this is too much of a coincidence. I started to walk into my patient's home and then I realised that mould was a significant contributing factor to almost all asthma and allergies and um, chronic fatigue syndrome was very much closely related to electromagnetic field exposure, chemical exposure and mould. Yeah, I mean, it's just startling what you share in the book and, and you know, what you've kind of shared here as well. Just the your journey in terms of your, the health impacts and how it's a very real thing. So then what about, um, you know, you've, you've created this book and you're, you know, you've got your college as well. Can you share about how then you went from obviously having this experience yourself and I guess the education journey that you've been on and then to actually then trying to help other people? Well, I started to look at my house and realised that there was evidence to suggest even that many years ago, you know, 18 years ago, that uh, exposure to magnetic fields and miscarriages, there was research on that in PubMed and um, started to ask my questions Uh, patients a lot more questions about their health and as I started to ask more questions and do what I now realised was an environmental exposure history I realised there was always a reason why many people were sick and a lot of it was in their home where they spend most of their time so I literally spent years researching the US EPA website World Health Organization I spent years much to the frustration of my then husband (laughs) why are you spending all this time researching I said because 
I became a naturopath to find the cure for cancer. I was obsessed with cancer as a 16-year-old and parents' friends were dying of cancer. And I thought there's always a reason why people get sick. Treating them with supplements and drugs is not is only one part of the solution, but I've been trained to treat with biocidicals. And I see that uh, in I had to come to the realisation that as a naturopath, I'm just like a doctor with less side effects because I give supplements instead of drugs and that wasn't I didn't feel comfortable with that so I want to know what's causing the patient's illness and what I've discovered over the last two to three decades is that the environment um, is really the most important uh, and diet is and lifestyle is the most important root causes of many of our illnesses it's where we spend most of our time and it's completely missed because most clinicians never do house visits to see what people live in. Like I've got incredible stories that I didn't put in the book, but I do talk a lot about with my students um, in relation to, you know, people with aviaries in their kids' room where there's bird poop all over the place, where they allow their dog to defecate and they don't pick it up and they're lawyers and doctors in these houses. It's just extraordinary the level of um, hygiene that some people live with and, and you know, these also go into mental health issues as well. But so I started to pull all this information together and talk to my students about it at uni in naturopathy, nutrition and Chinese medicine. And it grew from there. I eventually uh, established the Australian College of Environmental Studies in 99 and then wrote, went to the US to do the building biology course there and realised it was completely not relevant to Australia. Came back with just a piece of paper and 25 principles, building biology principles, because that was established in Germany initially, and then got together a whole lot of very educated people with PhDs in electrical engineering, you know, um, electrical inspectors, um, hygienists, uh, etc., and just spent years and years researching and eventually created the building biology industry in Australia and, and run the, and the only nationally accredited course, the Advanced Diploma of Building Biology, which is two years full-time, four years part-time. Hmm. So... What, what, how would you describe building biology? Like, you know, when it kind of comes down to it, I mean, and I guess, you know, I'm sure you, you meet people and if you say you're a building biologist and they might say, well, what, what is that? So how would you describe that? A building biologist examines and investigates the health hazards in the built environment. So whether it's a workplace, home, even cars, we test, we look at hazards in the home that can make people sick. And then we quantify those hazards using the latest technology, whether it's thermal imaging, you know, air sampling, um, surface sampling, dust sampling, um, identifying chemicals people use through their personal care products, cleaning products, building materials, helping people build healthy homes. And then we come up with a hypothesis, write reports and provide solutions much of the work we do is to network with a huge amount of people from restorers and remediators, doctors, integrative doctors and natural therapists who are aware of environmental exposures and how to diagnose environmental sensitivities, uh, to tradespeople, licensed roof plumbers to fix up the, you know, the flashing on the roof and um, the mould in their roof void or drainage and hydrologists because of drainage problems, etc. So we network with a lot of people uh, in order to identify whether the house is making the family sick and if so, which doctors or practitioners to see to help them get better and which tradespeople to come to fix the building if it is possible, to, if it's fit for habitation. One of the, the things that I found quite startling when I was reading your book was the statistics on how much our health as a society and culture has really sort of in many ways deteriorated. We have become sick as a society and a culture. You talk about the, you know, the huge increase in cancer. And I've always thought this. I've always thought, why is it that so many people these days seem to have cancer? Is it that we, you know, test it more? Is it that we, um, you know, we have more statistics to hand or what, you know, what is it? What is it? You know, and I've always sort of thought that, you know, perhaps it's linked to the food that we eat. And so, you know, I've kind of gone on my own journey a little while ago, probably about five or more years ago, sort of just being really conscious of the types of food that we eat. And um, I remember being shocked about um, I'm sure you work aware of the work of Dr. Peter Singer and, um, you know, his work on, on food and, you know, the way that it affects us as well. But, but 
it's becoming more and more known, this idea of our homes and how they can affect us. But I'm sure that there are still lots of people out there that sort of think, ah, oh, you know, it's not, it's not real or, you know, this is just some people being overreacting. But as you say, there is a lot of research out there to back this up. But you talk about in the book, and I'd be interested for you to sort of sort of expand on this a little bit, that it's in industry's best interests to to either squash this research research or put other research out. So can you just share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, what we know is that in since industrialization and especially since after World War II, with the development of the pharmaceutical industry, agricultural industry, and you know um, chemical industry, that we have exposed our species to huge levels of toxicants, which are man-made chemicals that have been unprecedented, that we've never been exposed to to this degree. And we know that they are correlated to almost every single chronic disease. So my PhD was looking at the impact of environmental chemicals on human health. And I literally mapped most chronic diseases that a doctor would see every day in clinical practice can be associated with chemicals, let alone mold and in some cases, electromagnetic fields. We are now, as of last week, there was um, publication in in the scientific literature that we are beyond now the exposure to chemicals, um, beyond which it it impacts human species and wildlife. It's like it's it's to the point of no return and it's expected to double or triple in the next 20 years. There is currently 194 million chemicals registered for use on the world's largest chemical database, the Chemical Abstract Service, and every 60 seconds another 20 chemicals are registered. Most of these chemicals have never been tested for their impact on human health, and those that have been chemical, uh, those that have been tested and have safety data sheets, you know, at least 20% of them are classified as group one carcinogens or cancer-causing. We know men's sperm count has dropped by more than 50% in the last 50 years, and instead of the medical industry going, "What the hell's going on?" they've just changed the benchmark as to what normal healthy sperm is, which is outrageous. We know a lot of this is very closely mapped to hormone-disrupting chemicals, which are in everyday products like perfume, fragrances in men's aftershave, um, fragrances in our cleaning products, you know, pesticides, the organochlorine pesticides, um, the organophosphates are ubiquitous on the planet. They are everywhere. If you live within a kilometre of a golf course, you're going to have high levels in your blood, no matter how good your organic diet is. So there's a lot of amazing research to say that we are every generation is becoming more and more pre-polluted and we're checking this with cord blood and also large population biomonitoring studies such as the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey in the US and they're showing every generation is just more and more polluted and they're very closely correlated with neurodevelopmental disorders, autism, ADHD, right up to the other end, neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's and dementia. Um, this is a huge concern and yet most of that data is not getting from the scientific research to the clinician's bench top. So it's not being put into into medicine. So the last 10 years I've spent travelling around the world speaking about how doctors can diagnose environmental sensitivities to electromagnetic fields, to chemicals, multiple chemical sensitivity and, um, you know, wireless technologies, etc. because we're all impacted by this our fertility fertility is the least important system in your body because it's the first thing to shut down when you're not well because it's the least important like you know female athletes don't menstruate it's there's a reason that happens um to treat fertility you have to reduce your toxic load and unfortunately that toxic load starts with your grandparent and it's passed through the placenta and it's passed through the breast milk so the person at the very end of the food chain from the microalgae in the oceans right up the food chain to the human is actually the baby breastfeeding. And we now know breastfeed, breast milk is actually one of the best biomarkers to determine how toxic our species has become, which is incredibly sad. Good news is by educating people to reduce their toxic load, to prevent this, you know, com- this consumer rampism, rampant consumerism, which has led to you know, increases in global warming to global pollution because we're buying stuff that has planned obsolescence where it doesn't last. And there was, you know, a very specific time point in the 70s and 80s where they decided that, you know, a hot water service shouldn't last 45 years like my last one, that it's only to last seven years. So people have to keep buying stuff for dividends for shareholders. 
So my journey's really become a bit political and so are my students who learn this because they have to get over the shock that there are not exposure standards that are protecting families, um, that they're buying personal care products, shampoos, conditioners, moisturisers and things like that and foods that contain toxicants that are not there that have been tested. Many of them have not been tested and their public health virtually doesn't exist except for better sewage, better drinking water with chlorination, etc. Um, this is a real problem and it's across the board. And until clinicians start recognising this and diagnosing them in their patients, um, we will continue to eventually become more and more infertile, which, you know, I joked about with my students two decades ago, it won't be a nuclear bomb that wipes us out, it'll be infertility. And that's certainly what's going on. Wow. I mean, it's you, you write in your book um, that once you learn all of this, you can't unlearn it. Mm. And I actually had a very similar experience when I wrote a book called Still the Slow Home. And I was looking at how I was kind of feeling very overwhelmed about what was happening with the, the planet and rampant consumerism, as you talk about. And But then there was seen so many uh, contradictory information. And it's like, what can we do? Because I felt like, well, I can recycle my soft plastics, but then you look at the amount of plastics that are in building you know, building homes or anything. And it's like, it just seems ridiculous for me to be worrying about that in some ways, even though I do. And yet it's out of control in other industry. And and so anyway, I went on to this journey of exploring about how I, I really believe that the best place we can start is in our home because that's what we can control. We can't control governments. We can't control industry always or what's happening with that but we can control what we do in our own homes and and I had an exact thought which was and when I was looking at landfill I thought once you see it you can't unsee it once you learn all this stuff you can't unlearn it mm -hmm. it is like a huge awakening isn't it it's it's just it's sickening and yet really at the same time it can be empowering as well because then you can actually make good decisions and share your knowledge with other people. So let's talk about how we can, well, maybe first of all, let's look at some signs that your home might be sick. What are some of the common signs that you might have a sick home? Visible mold and a damp, musty odor is a big red flag. By the time you see visible mold, you're looking at 65 million spores per centimeter squared even to register that with your eyes. So a little bit of mold, probably a little problem, bit more mold, bigger problem. The problem is that what you're seeing on the surface of the wall may be the titanic iceberg inside the wall cavity. So the way we would address this, and in the end, in my building biology course, what I'm doing is training people to take a thorough environmental exposure history. If someone has asthma and allergies or chronic fatigue syndrome, because we now know Mold is the biggest contributing factor to uh, fatiguing syndrome, which a lot of autoimmune diseases are. And a lot of the autoimmune diseases I see in families, I go, that's just mold. That's misdiagnosed. Like MS, I can't tell you how many women I see with multiple sclerosis where I go, you take a history and you realise it happened with the water event or when they moved into the house and, you know, you start doing testing, you know, it's mold. Not every case will be that, but a lot of them are. So visible mould and odour. When you're smelling damp, musty odour, that is a sign there's microbial growth, bacteria and fungi growing in your home, and their purpose is to decompose your house because that's what nature does. What you want in a healthy home is a dry Mediterranean-like climate that doesn't support microbial growth. The problem is when you live in Sydney, Central Coast, Queensland, Darwin, you're living in a persistently humid environment. And because the humidity regularly exceeds 70%, for more than 48 hours, that's going to support microbial growth every surface of your house. So unless you're prepared to have permanent dehumidification or heat your home to a point to dry the air to prevent dew point and condensation, it's going to be a problem. And that's a big part of the work we do is saying there is a cost to living in those humid environments and that means having a dehumidifier like your air conditioning on, you know, most of the year or at least heating the house, you know, winter time to a point to stop that condensation not opening windows in humid environments, making sure your house is that when you have a shower, it's vented to the exterior, the steam from the shower doesn't go into the roof void, 
um, making sure that you know when you heat the house in winter you eat the hot you heat the whole house not parts of the house because when you get water vapor going to cooler parts of the house that are not heated it's more likely to condense because it hits dew point and cause you know splotches of visible mold which is common in walk-in robes and things like that on the cold parts of the house so a lot of it's, you know, helping people deal with water vapour, understanding the conditions that support microbial growth and, you know, cleaning. There's so much misinformation about clove oil and vinegar and why you use, you know, chemicals to kill mould. Don't use any chemicals. Don't use any essential oils. A lot of these essential oils when you use in a bathroom, they're so good at uh, degreasing that they would actually compromise your waterproof membranes. So if you start spraying eucalyptus in the shower, it gets through the grout and it actually dissolves the petrochemical, which is the waterproof membrane in the wall. So that's going to make your bathroom service life go from seven years to one. So it's also at the building stage, educating people to spend the $2,000 to get a proper waterproof membrane system, not by the builder, but by a company that that sells it as a full system. And then their bathroom rental will last from seven years to 35 years. You know, simple things like that. Making sure they build with eaves. Every house needs a hat. If you don't have eaves, you're not protecting against the sun and wind-driven rain. And by 20 to 30 years of age, that house needs major renovations because it's not like the European houses that last 700 years. We're building crap in this country and it's coming at a massive cost. I think the big problem is our land is so ridiculously expensive that people don't have enough money to build good homes anymore and there are not many good builders that even know how to build a home, a great home to prevent these issues because it's it, they just comply to code, National Construction Code, which is completely inadequate. The Australian standards for waterproofing are completely inadequate. So we have multiple, we have systemic failures across multiple industries that are driving all of these illnesses that are directly linked to our homes. So it's it's huge. And that's a, another reason why I started the college, to get the building biologists into people's homes, educate them how to reduce their toxic load, how to, to take their shoes off before they come in so they don't track those pesticides in, how to not use chemical pesticides inside the house. You look at, you know, fly screens and, and not leaving food around and moisture around and really common sense stuff. As you'll see from the book, most of what I recommend is knowledge. I, I think the only thing I encourage people to buy is an air filter, water filter and a good vacuum cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've, I've got to ask you about the mould and the clove oil thing because um, I live in the Byron Bay region and as you would know, we've had massive flooding. I have been scrubbing my house, you know, every weekend when I can, and we've got the dehumidifier going every day and night because it's, um, yeah, I mean, the humidity is over 70% every single day. And, um, you know, I've gone to help in Lismore where houses have been, you know, severely affected by flooding. So what, um, if you start, I mean, generally our home is quite good, but we've had nonstop rain pretty much since December. So, you know, it's been intense. What would you recommend then when it comes to cleaning your home if you are, I guess there's two things. I mean, let's put aside for for a moment, like the, the, the kind of chronic mold, but just because I think there's a lot of homes that are experiencing increased mold, even in Sydney, I've heard of, I've been talking to friends in Sydney and they say, because it's been nonstop rain there as well, they've been having increased mold in their home. You know, homes that are usually pretty good, but you know, they, I know certainly here we've got because we get, you know, we're in a country property, so we get dust on the exterior. The mold is starting to attract to the, the the dust. So I've been kind of cleaning all down, you know, with a high pressure hose, and I have been using clove oil and vinegar. So I'm starting to feel a bit <laughs> worried about that. So what should I be doing? Right. So the first thing is to prevent it becoming a mold issue, and the cause of mold is moisture. Just to get clear, in a healthy home, you're going to have up to 500 spores of mold per square inch of every surface of every part of that house. It's on your body, it's in your gut, it's only 2% of your gut microbiome, but it's there. It's nature's greatest decomposers. You're meant to have mold spores and bacteria on every surface. In fact, without microbes, there's no life because, of course, your mitochondria was derived from you know, the maternal side of your of bacteria, basically, from your mother's side. So... The issue here is we've been given this propaganda that bacteria are bad. 
Most bacteria in our home are essential for life. And what we now know with the microflora hypothesis is the more diverse the bacteria is in the household dust, the lower the risk for asthma and allergies. But in the 70s and 80s, there was this campaign that, you know, you, a good woman, mother would keep a house clean and use chem, strong chemicals and bleach and things like that to get rid of bad germs. Well, in fact, there's more bacteria in your body than there are human cells. There are trillions of them. And now we know the diversity of, of bacteria in your gut microbiome determines how healthy you are. That's why antibiotics can have devastating impacts long term um, if they're just used willy nilly, so to speak. So what we need to understand is microbes are meant to be everywhere on the surface. So the, the question therefore is, when does mold become a health issue? And it becomes a health issue when you give it food, which is everything in your house is the perfect food. When you give it a temperature between 15 and 30 degrees, which is all homes. So the key is moisture. As soon as you have liquid water or water vapor, like humidity beyond 70% for 48 hours or more, and that's all you've got that's going to support microbial growth. So when I'm in Sydney, like I was last weekend with the students teaching them how to assess water damaged buildings, I say in Sydney, Gold Coast, whatever, every see wherever there's dust, there's microbial growth. And I'll show you with my ATP meter that it's growing. You just assume that. So you have to be more vigilant about not having dust on the windows, on the windowsills, on surfaces than I would in Melbourne because it's a lot drier here. So the dust we have here is just dust. Dust you have in Sydney, Byron Bay is going to be dust plus microbial growth and spores that are producing hyphae and fungi and going into the air and increasing risk for respiratory problems and fatiguing syndrome. So the issue is in your case where you've got high water uh, humidity, you need to have permanent dehumidification or at least a dehumidifier that's intelligent that kicks in after 60%. So it keeps your humidity levels between 40 and 60%. And if it drops below 40%, you know, it stops. So you want to keep it below 60%. Um, in liquid water events like heavy rain, where you've got, if you've got drainage problems, because a lot of the problems we're seeing with mould is just lack of maintenance. People don't get on their roof. I'm on my roof every six weeks cleaning the gutters. I go to people's homes, they go, I've never been on the roof. Yeah, oh, that's that's probably why this levels in your roof went up out of control. Like people don't understand. It's like you have to service and tune your body, so you have to with your home. It's not negotiable. Even if you're renting, it's not the landlord that's being impacted by that house. It's you, and you need to look after it. So, if there are drainage issues, they need to be fixed. If there are roof-related problems and flashing and tiles missing, they need to be fixed. You need to investigate them on a regular basis, at least every quarterly, to check that you know in a heavy rainpour, if water is pooling around the house, that needs to be addressed. If you decide to build on a hill, in a hill, you know, at the bottom of a hill, that comes at a massive cost. Unless you're willing to spend 40, 50 grand on drainage and good stormwater system, then eventually it's going to be problematic. And this is the reality of what's going on out there. So um, with mould, it's caused by moisture. So once moisture is there for more than 48 hours, if in that 48 hour period you want to dry, now how do you dry a house? There's three things. You want you want heaters. When you heat the air and the ideal temperature to, to reduce the moisture in a house when you're drying it from a flood is 27 degrees. That seems to be the best because warm air holds more moisture. So the warmer the air is, the more it's pulling the moisture off the surfaces in the room. As it's pulling the moisture into the air, it'll hit saturation. If it's 100% saturated, it's going to reprint back into the room, walls and ceilings. So that's when you want a dehumidifier. So as the room is being heated, you have a dehumidifier to pull the moisture out of that air. And of course, the rate at which it's coming off the surface and the rate in which it's coming out of the air needs to be the same. The third one is air fans. So air movement will speed up evaporation off the surface. So if you can do fans, a heater, preferably close to 27 degrees, and a dehumidifier, if you're within the 48 hours and dry that room out so it's all dry, then it's not going to be a mold problem. After 72 hours, you've got significant, you're starting to get significant microbial growth. And that's when it goes from a few hundred dollars to thousands of dollars, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in remediation. Because in the scientific literature, once you see mold and you smell it, 
that is strongly causative, not just associated, but causative for asthma and allergies. That's well established in the literature. Um, so it's really important then to, to get rid of the mould. There's two things you need to know. You need to know the porosity of the material and you need to know its condition. So porosity means if you have something that's porous, like you know textiles, clothing, you have soft furnishings and fabrics and curtains, if there's visible mould on it, the rule of thumb is to actually discard it, not negotiable. Because every time you move that curtain, you're pumping up huge amounts of fungal particulate that can lead to asthma attacks and hospital admissions, chronic fatigue for the next week or two, maybe months, just from moving that curtain with um, mould on it. So if you've got mould on porous surfaces, the rule of thumb is to actually discard and get rid of it. Um, if And that includes your chiprock on your walls. So, you know, that needs to be cut out. When you clean it, you're disturbing it. And unless you have a full face respirator on to protect your nose, your mouth and your eyes, you're going to get high levels of fungal particulate. And it's only a matter of time before you get sick. Some people with a certain genotype will get sick within minutes and hours. Others like me will end up getting a cold or flu that keeps coming back and other, others will get tonsillitis over and over again. Kids will get bronchitis and persistent respiratory tract infections that aren't responsive to antibiotics or herbal supplements. So with visible mould on porous surface, the rule of thumb is to get rid of it. Carpets and underlay are some of the worst. When they are wet, if they're not dry within 48 hours, you get rid of them because they will persist in the that type of fungal particulate in the air. If it's a non-porous surface like windows, stainless steel, masonry, um, things like that, then you just vacuum clean it, follow it through with a microfiber cloth and then vacuum clean it again so you can actually restore them. If it's semi-porous like tiles and bricks and uh, timber furnishings that aren't sealed, the rule of thumb is if there's no visible mould, then you're just going to vacuum clean it, followed by a microfiber cloth, followed by vacuuming. So the focus of mould remediation is to rem physically remove the fungal particulate, not kill the mould. 75% of mould spores are already dead. So you're killing something that's already dead. Only 25% of mould spores will live. And I can tell you, even there's no chemical that's going to kill all the mould spores. It just doesn't exist because Fungi are higher up the kingdom than humans in the capacity to be resilient and to survive any condition. You put bleach onto mould, all you've done is bleach the mould so you can't see it. Within two weeks, it's come back as it never went. You just bleached it. And it will use the bleach as a food source. So you're actually supporting more growth. That's the problem. So what about, sorry, mould in showers then? I mean, obviously, showers are a wet area. Um, what you know, again, this could be something, I mean, I've just spoken about a situation that's a, a little bit of a, hopefully an anomaly, we'll see, but, um, but what about shower areas and bathroom areas? Yeah. What should you do there? So ideally after a shower, you would have a, either a squidgie or a microfiber cloth to wipe down the moisture because the moisture is sitting there for more than 48 hours. Fortunately with bathrooms, a lot of it's just surface moisture. And that's simply because unless you get rid of the moisture after you've had a shower, if it sits there for more than 48 hours, it will support microbial growth. Mostly tends to happen on in the grout because mould doesn't grow on tiles unless they're dirty. So the question there is how often is the bathroom showers cleaned because it won't grow on the tile, but it will if there's any biofilms or, or dirt on it. So, again, a lot of this will come down to hygiene and um, keeping surfaces free from dust as much as possible, but easy to prevent just with a squidgy or a, a wiper in order to reduce the moisture within the shower. The big problem we find with bathrooms is waterproof membranes. They are often not applied properly um, and they are only designed to last the building warranty of seven years. Most people don't realise that if they spent that extra $2,000 and got a proper waterproofing company to come in and do the whole system properly instead of the builder, that would last not seven years, it'll last 30, 35 years. Like I would, for a $20,000 renovation, I can't afford to renovate every seven years. I don't know anyone who can. But I would be willing to spend that extra $2,000 to make sure it lasts at least 30 years. These are the sort of things that consumers need to be aware of. Yeah, and you've touched on obviously chemicals in the home, and that's a big issue. Um, 
again, you know, some people might not have issues with with mold as such, but let's talk about mattresses and blankets and all of those things that people are perhaps not aware of about how much that can impact our health. Yes, so these are mattresses bedding are the allergen reservoirs. The most common allergy in the world is due to dust mite, house dust mite. It accounts for 21% of the world's population. One in five people allergic to dust mite, including my daughter. Now, how do you know is because you end up getting sneezing attacks or respiratory issues and runny nose, blocked noses during the night and in the morning tends to get better during the day and then it happens again at night and it's all year round as opposed to pollen allergy, which happens only specific times of the year, depending on grasses and, and flowers, etc. So with bedding, you really need to maintain them by exposing them to the greatest cleaning agent of all, the sun. You want to be able to air them in the sun. You want to be able to buy bedding that you can wash in warm water, 60 degrees or more, to kill off dust mite and to um, expose it to the sun, to the UV, which, of course, dust mite don't like. You want to get rid of carpets in the house. I don't like carpets in the house, but I love rugs. In Melbourne, it gets quite cool, so, you know, timber boards are best um, with rugs that you can put outside and beat and expose it to the sun. And if you're going to steam clean them, you can put them outside to dry so they dry within 48 hours. I've seen a lot of people in mould environments where they've got steam clean their carpets because their kids have allergies and it's caused huge amounts of mould in their home because the carpets didn't get dry within 48 hours and now they're a source of microbial growth. So that's important. In terms of chemicals embedding, flame retardants are the big problem there because most of the uh, goods we buy are imported from Asia and that comes at a cost. When you have Australian manufacturers, they are not allowed to use a lot of those chemicals that are put in the chemicals in, you know, from other countries. So Australian manufacturers for mattresses can't put formaldehyde in, which is a known carcinogen. It causes cancer of the throat and it's a very strong eye, skin and lung irritant. Um, and yet it's put in all less kids' school uniforms. It's put it into our mattresses because it's an anti-crease agent. So when you're buying furnishings and uh, mattresses and school uniforms, you know, the, the heavily thick um, winter uniform pinafores and things, they are often loaded with formaldehyde, which is a carcinogen, which an Australian manufacturer wouldn't be allowed to put in, but they're all imported from Asia and no one's checking it because our regulatory authority for chemical exposures is completely inadequate, which is a big part of my PhD and the book, that we are not being protected, that people assume they're buying it in a shop, that someone's tested it, it's, it's not happening. We have a lot of listeners who are based around the world. It, from your knowledge, is it a similar situation in the, the States and, and Europe as well? Well, the Toxic Substance Control Act was enacted to deal with this, the same with REACH, which is in Europe, to um, start regulating new chemicals coming onto the market. But unfortunately, there's tens of thousands of chemicals in the grandfather clause that are still being used that haven't been tested. Mind, mind you, it's a huge job to do this. The big problem with chemical exposures and testing is it's only looking at one chemical on one group of rats at increasing doses until you establish the LD50, which is the lethal dose 50, which means that you give increasing um, amounts of chemicals to a group of rats until 50% die. The problem is that you and I are exposed to hundreds of chemicals and the synergistic effect of those chemicals when they combine can be completely different in their, on their impact on our biology than on one chemical one time. We also do not look at genetic susceptibility, and we know there are many uh, gene variants now that can make people 20 times more sensitive to chemicals than another person. So they might go past you know, a department store where there's perfume and get a migraine headache for two days, and another person can work there for 20 years and not get those symptoms. Um, however, when I wrote a, a study, I was investigating how doctors assess chemical load and I interviewed the top 17 environmental doctors in Australia and New Zealand, and I asked them, you know, how do they deal with chemical exposures in their patients um, and what tests do they use, et cetera? And basically one of the doctors said a quote, which I put into that research that was, um, you know, published in a journal, 
And he said, Cole, you know, in 30 years of treating patients with chemical sensitivity and chronic fatigue syndrome, how many of those patients do you think develop cancer? I said, I don't know. I don't know any of that do. And he said, exactly right. Most of the, I've had three patients with chronic fatigue syndrome um, have cancer. Most of them never get it. And you know why? It's because they're the ones who can smell the problem and they move away from it because their body's telling them with a headache, that's not good for me. Whereas you and I, we stand there, we absorb it, and we just suddenly die of heart disease and cancers and things. Whereas they're like the most important people in our society warning the rest of the population, there's something really wrong and they're the barometer. We're ignoring it, but then we'll just die suddenly from these, you know, cancers and cardiovascular disease because we just push through and our bodies aren't giving us the warning signs like what's happening with this growing number of people with environmental sensitivities. So I thought that was really very interesting. And they said also that there's no lab test that is most important to assess chemical load. The most important clinical tool a doctor has is to take an environmental exposure history, but not one of them was trained how to do it. They had to learn from listening to their patients over decades to create their own environmental exposure history. And they all agree it takes 90 minutes to do it properly in the first consultation. And if they did that, and they put it on Medicare, they would probably be flagged and potentially deregistered from the system, medical system. So the system is flawed and it's not supporting doctors who bother to listen to their patients. Um, and it's, I mean, it's broken across so many ch chains. And that's why I've been so dedicated to establishing the building biology industry and realising that the revolution has to change from the ground up by educating people so they can make informed choices about the products they buy. Yeah, so key. Um, now, let's talk about electromagnetic fields because you've mentioned that a few times. Can you explain what actually is an electromagnetic field and, and how it impacts us in our homes? So electromagnetic fields are waves that exist. We are exposed to natural electromagnetic fields all the time. The sun, of course, without the sun, there will be no life. Um, the terrestrial radiation on the planet, which is the Earth's magnetic field as a result of the molten ore within the Earth's core, and, of course, the Schumann resonance in the ionosphere. These are natural electromagnetic fields that we have evolved on. We know wildlife depend on this for navigation and reproduction, and yet what we've done since 2000 with the um, launch of the Wi-Fi uh, technology and especially the infrastructure required to support that mobile phone base stations, satellites, you know, they're currently putting up 20, 30,000 satellites to support the 5G network, is we've bathed the planet with man-made electromagnetic fields that you can't see, that you can't smell, you're not mindful of them, but there's a significant body of research now associating them with sleep disturbances because it impacts melatonin. It impacts and targets the heart the brain and the testes and impacts the cell membranes to cause calcium to come in and cause high levels of oxidative stress, which is um, also synonymous with inflammation in the body. So there's quite a lot of data now saying, whilst it doesn't directly cause cancer through X the way X-rays and nuclear bombs cause cancer by ionizing the DNA in our cells, it does cause cancer indirectly by causing high levels of oxidative stress, which impact the mitochondria, which causes creates the energy in the cell, but also can kill the cell itself. So we now, and suppress melatonin, enhance the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, et cetera. We're finding a significant amount of patients with electrical sensitivity are also in water-damaged buildings with mould because EMFs can enhance the permeability of the brain and the central nervous system to the mould and the chemicals in the body. So it's like the perfect storm. When you're exposed to all these electromagnetic fields through, and the biggest sources will be your extenders and boosters and routers, your smart meters, and of course, the thing closest to your head that you keep near you all the time, this, the cell phone. So this is emitting high levels of radio frequencies, which can have an impact on brain fog, poor concentration, poor memory, what we call a pre-outsymic brain in people. It can cause palpitations and chest discomfort, um, but it, it's also concerns that it may cause uh, sperm uh, impacts, low sperm count, etc. So... Obviously, I mean, that's, you know, it's it's startling, but we also live in a world where we, you know, 
so many of us work from home. I mean, I work from home and I, you know, I need Wi-Fi and I need good Wi-Fi. I mean, even for us to have this conversation today, I mean, you know, we need to sort of, we're, we're part of a society where this exists. So how can we do that in a safe way in our homes? Well, the good news, you can. The, the most important thing about electromagnetic field exposure is distance. As you double the distance, you reduce your exposure by 75%. It's based on the inverse square law. So I have hardwired connections. I don't have Wi-Fi. I have Ethernet cables throughout the walls, which I've got an electrician to come in so that there's ports. So when the kids are on their iPads or laptops, they have to connect it to the port in the wall and have a physical cable for their laptop which they were not happy about initially because they're in a split family. So at their dad's house, it's all Wi-Fi and they can move around the house. My house, they have to connect to a hard way and stay fixed. So um, because my PhD was looking at the impact of a baby monitor on healthy adult sleep, it was statistically significant. So I have very huge concerns about the radiation from many of these devices, but I love my technology and I have a cell phone and I run my business from the cell phone, but I never put it near my head. I always text as much as I can. I use a hardwired corded phone whenever I can. I will um, use a loudspeaker always, or I'll use my earpiece like this because I don't want it near my person, so to speak. And of course, there's warnings on there not to keep it near your person. With extenders, if you have to have uh, routers, you put them in rooms that people aren't using, or you put it in the garage and you power it down. Because when you get it, it's powered to its maximum and it's bathing your entire house and probably the neighbor's house. So you want to power it down so you only can get Wi-Fi connectivity in a couple of the rooms of the house. You don't want it anywhere near your bedroom. You don't want any Wi-Fi enabled devices like printers, computers. You want to turn off the Bluetooth capability, mobile data. And you certainly do not want them in your bedroom and you don't want to be charging your phone in the bedroom. People are always staggered how much better they sleep when they don't have Wi-Fi enabled devices in their bedroom or adjacent rooms, they're just staggered um, because they're emitting high levels of radio frequencies. Yeah, gosh, again, I'm just thinking about like what you said about the baby monitors and also while you were talking about mattresses and, and blankets and all of those things, you know, one of the things I've always thought about is that, you know, we give our babies organic baby food perhaps or you know we organic produce and we purify it but that yet we let them sleep on a mattress that we know nothing about we you know and they're breathing that in all night you know which is startling and then like you say this this idea which I hadn't even considered of the baby monitors it's, it's just like you say it's really about educating ourselves about what we have in our home and the impact that those things have and really in many ways it's as much as possible kind of going back to basics and going back to how things were and but you know obviously like we say you know there, there are ways that we sort of have to be considered with you know if we are using our phones or our computers to run our businesses you know to do that in a, a sensible way now many people who listen to this podcast uh you know they're passionate about their homes and they're probably going to be building or renovating at some stage can you share some insights? You've spoken um, a little bit about waterproofing and how important that is for our homes, the eaves and, you know, the role that they play in building design. If somebody is about to renovate their home or they've got a block of land and they're about to build from scratch, what are some of the key things you, sh you think that they should consider? Good question. Chapter six of my book goes into a lot of detail on that and it starts with location. That the location can already impact the health of the home because if you are building within a kilometre or seven kilometres of a flight path, you're already on the back foot. If you're building within a kilometre of a golf course, you're going to have high levels of glyphosate and other chemicals, many of which are carcinogens in your body. If you're building within 500 metres downwind from heavy traffic, then you know, you're going to increase your risk for lung and heart-related disorders. So the location is so very important. That's why I live in a quiet street where the birds wake me up, where I can see trees out of every window. I mean, I'm fortunate that I, well, I very specifically chose a house like that because the trees are the lungs instead of my lungs having to, to breathe in any air toxicity. The trees around me do that. Um, so these are the sort of things I'll look at before you even buy the block of land. It's proximity to known hazards. 
um, coal seam gas exploration, wind turbines, distribution, high voltage transmission lines, all of these things can have significant impact on people's health before they even build the house. So that's the first thing. Check the history of the land. Last Sunday I was doing an audit in Sydney for water damaged building and the whole street had been built above a flood zone. And, you know, we're talking up to two metres of water in all of these homes. I mean, the fact that the council allow this is just extraordinary. You can't fix a problem like that. There's nothing I can say to prevent that happening again because you don't, and simple things like that. Is this a flood zone? You know, is there an underground aquifer um, under the house? The best thing I can ever ask, tell someone to, to do, apart from getting a building biologist to assess the property before you do, you know, as a pre-inspection audit, is to walk that street and, uh, you know, go to every person's house and ask, can you tell me about the history of this particular home before I move in? You know, was it the divorce house? Was Did they have flood damage? Someone in the street has lived there all their life and they know exactly what's happened in that home and that information is gold. Have the courage or pay someone to find out about the history of that house because there's information you'll find. Like, for example, I did an audit of a house where she was really sick with chronic fatigue and her daughter has severe allergies. They spent over a million dollars on the property. This was 10 years ago. And um, I went and did the assessment for Malden and was unremarkable. And I said, look, I need you to find out about the history of the house because obviously the allergies had skyrocketed. And in the end, she found out two days later that the previous person who lived in her house was the cat lady who had 16 cats where the water and the moisture in, in the timber of many much part of the house wasn't water. It was actually cat urine. And they are highly allergic to cats. So all the dust is cat allergen, all the ducted heating vents that have cat allergen. I mean, if she'd known that before she built the property, she before she bought the property, she probably wouldn't have moved in. Simple things like that. So the first one is location. The second one is, you know, um, as I mentioned, to prevent condensation and mould, really think about the building envelope. And what I mean by that is the floor, the walls and the roof. When I did an inspection, of the house before I moved into this one. Everyone came into the house, I didn't. I went into the subfloor with all my equipment and to check what's underneath. I wanna know what's hidden. I went into the roof void. You know, I didn't care really so much what was going inside. I wanna know what's hidden to see what, what's really going on here. So the vapor barriers, you wanna make sure if you're gonna build that you have intelligent vapor wraps. You don't want vapor wraps that are impermeable you want to make sure they allow water vapor to move out of the building envelope so you know if you're going to build you would employ someone like pro climber i don't get any commission from them that use very specific building science and physics to say depending on your microclimate and climate zone you should build your wall like this with the installation like this, with this type of vapor barrier based on your humid climate. That's going to be very different to a type of home you build in a dry climate like Melbourne. So you need to get that right. Building off a plan is a recipe for disaster because one house put anywhere in Australia, it doesn't work. That block of land will determine already where the living space is going to be, where the bedroom should be in the east, the utility should be in the west, the living spaces should be in the north. That's really important. What you have on your south walls with less solar orientation means more con condensation and mould risk. So all of that should be considered. We do offer packages working with clients and, and architects on how to build a healthy home for that particular block of land in that particular microclimate. And that's what it's going to take to build a healthy home. Being mindful about the materials you bring in that are not just low VOC. What we now realise is VOC, a lot of that's marketing hype. That low VOCs is actually not a useful marker for paints and sealants and glues, that there's a significant amount of really toxic building materials that are still gases at room temperature that are VOCs, but not classified as VOCs because of a different definition. So you need to know what the definition is to even know what VOCs mean. And we realise this is a lot of marketing hype that's actually can cause huge amounts of low VOC paints, et cetera, can still cause lots of indoor air quality issues because of the way in which they're defined and regulated isn't actually necessary good for air quality. So you have to read through the fine print. And this is what we do as building biologists, just really start looking at what's going on and 
you know, what's happening in a new build and why building tight homes to me is synonymous with more unhealthy homes. We can have energy efficient, sustainable homes, but the reality of what's going on right now is they tend to be far more unhealthy homes because they're built energy efficient. They're too tight, passive ventilation is non-existent, and that means more condensation, more mould, more VOCs, because unless you're thinking about you're going to buy furnishing from Asia, it's full of formaldehyde and chemicals, where do those chemicals go if there's no passive ventilation in that living room? They imprint on the walls and you inhale them and your kids inhale them. So this ridiculous push for sustainability and energy efficiency forgot to think about water vapour management, forgot to think about passive ventilation. And from my perspective, I would not be living in a new home that's an eight-star energy rated plastic bag because they tend to have more condensation and more chemical issues from my experience. We need to change this and we need to start really looking at what's going on. We can have both, but the regulation at the moment is all energy efficient or energy efficiency. And to me, that equals sick house. So what's, what, sorry, can you just explain about the plastic bag, what you were saying? So because a lot of the energy efficient homes are so tight, they have vapour barriers that are impermeable to water vapour. That means that all the water vapour, every person contributes around 10 litres of water vapour per day in that home, you're breathing out three litres of water vapour. By the time you take into consideration your bathing, your washing, your your cooking, every person emits about 10 litres of water vapour per day. So if you've got four people in the house, that's 40 litres of water vapour in the air. When that hits, goes through the gyprock, your plaster seat, your plaster boards in your um, walls, and hits an impermeable vapour barrier, you know that sheeting, that blue sheeting around the house, the, the wrap, because it can't move through that, it hits, it condenses, it makes your insulation wet, which means its R value is gone. It's no longer energy efficient. And now you've got hidden mould and condensation in a, in a wall cavity. So what is good in theory and what's actually going on is completely different. So research conducted by the University of Tasmania found that 40% of new builds by their first window, first winter, had condensation and mould problems in the wall cavities by their first winter. And we're talking temperate climates like Melbourne, Tasmania, Adelaide, et cetera. I mean, that's extraordinary. You've just invested $600,000 in a house that's got mould by its first winter, 40% chance. I mean, there's huge, as again, systemic failures across multiple industries. It's going to take a lot to fix this because they need to start using common sense when it comes to building and certainly when it comes to healthy homes. There's a lot that needs to be done. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it's just like the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Ooh. So now people might be, I'm sure that everyone, first of all, everyone's going to get your book because there's just so much. I mean, it really is an incredible resource. That's, I think, the first starting point. Now, there are going to be some people who are going to be curious about training with you. Can you, you've touched on it a little bit, but can you sort of share a little bit more about that? And then also, then employing your your business or your services, um, you know, to, to get their home checked. Can you share about how they could do that? Sure. So for information about becoming a building biologist or becoming a mold testing technician, because there's more work than we have consultants. It's extraordinary. It's, you know, um, for a two-year full-time course, it's 14000 Australian dollars. Um, which is less than a year at a private school. And, you know, you can earn a significant amount of money going in and testing homes. Most of the work we get is from doctors referring patients with autoimmune disorders and chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, so you can do individual subjects like mold testing, which is part of the building biology course, or electromagnetic field testing, air sampling. It involves doing subjects in air pollution, learning about indoor air quality, learning about drinking water. So why everyone needs a water filter? What are the contaminants in drinking water? And why you need a specific water filter because of the domestic pipes and distribution system. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot on the college website, aces.edu.au. It's the only government accredited course in Australia. I believe it's the only nationally accredited course in undergraduate course in the world that is um, specific. I'm looking at creating a Bachelor of Building Biology by becoming a higher education provider in the next two years. We'll see how that goes. 
But basically, there's a lot of work out there. You're going in there and you're testing. You're sitting down with the family to see what health issues they have. You'll be trained to know what symptoms, what hazards to look for that can cause those symptoms. And then using state-of-the-art equipment to verify and quantify those those issues, create a report and then provide and sit down with the client as to how they can reduce their exposure, which is primarily through knowledge. Um, we have lots of free information through my personal website, buildingbiology.com.au, lots on YouTube of information I've provided in videos. The latest one was how to prevent mould um, after floods and that's, you know, created a lot of hype. I think it had like 6,000 views in the first couple of weeks. Um, just common sense thing on drying buildings. Um, and also my professor Mark Cohen and I are creating an environmental exposure app that you can do that you can do as an app in order to identify if your house could be making you sick. So there'll be some great resources coming. That's amazing. And um, yeah, so I encourage everyone, like I said, get the book, go and check out your website. And um, and I yeah, it, it really sounds like it's worth in you know sort of investing in getting people to check out your home particularly if you have concerns about um you know big mold issues or others i mean there is so much that we could have talked about i mean we haven't even touched on pets and you know there's this whole heap of things but it's just um i i I hope that this has been a good sort of uh introduction to people to to get people thinking and just you know, really getting their knowledge up on, on what's happening. And I so appreciate all the work. I can see how passionate you are about this subject. And it is really, really important. As I say, I really believe so many of the things in our lives, if we can begin in our own homes, you know, we're well on the way to, to living a healthier and happier life. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to speak about something I'm really passionate about. <laughs> All of the links and info for this episode are at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can get a direct download of the latest episode. And I really appreciate when you take a minute to rate and review, as well as share the love with someone you know who might benefit from this episode or on social media. If you'd like to access a range of free resources, come visit my website, nataliewalton.com. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast. And I would also like to acknowledge the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint.